uh, go to Luke chapter 13. That's where we're going to be uh, this morning. If you're new or visiting, just uh, super glad that you're here with us. Um, this is uh, basically what, what happens here is it's just a worship service. So um, we love to worship Jesus a number of ways, and, and Jesus is who we believe is God's son. He's the one who came as a man who lived the life we couldn't live, died the death that was necessary to forgive sin and reconcile us to God and appease the wrath of God that was towards us in our sin, and then rose validating that he did it, that it was finished, and then gifts us his Holy Spirit. Um, to then walk in newness of life. And so uh, we worship Jesus because of that very central idea that is called his person and work. And we worship Jesus by singing like you just uh, heard. We sing songs to declare who he is and declare what he's done uh, in his person and work on the cross. We also uh, worship Jesus by uh, giving because Jesus gave most generously in his son. And so we give in the uh, silver silver boxes in the back. Many of you guys give online as well. Uh, And we also worship Jesus by observing what's called the Lord's Supper where we see visibly and remember visibly and celebrate visibly his broken body and shed blood uh, that forgives us of our sin. And so I'm just glad you're here to worship with us. Luke uh, chapter 13, this is, um, we're about halfway through Luke. If you've been with us for a while, we love to just trek through books of the Bible. So the way that we worship Jesus is by actually um, looking at the scriptures and seeing what the scriptures have to say uh, about Jesus. And and, uh, just in case you're new to Christianity or new to the Bible, um, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, the, the entire scriptures revolve around this person who is Jesus. So um, every text you read, every book we walk through, we're going to see more of the the marvelous work of Jesus. We're going to see more of his beauty, more of his personhood, more of his grace. And so um, that's what we're doing in the Gospel of Luke. We decided to land in the Gospel so we could just stare at Jesus in the flesh as he lived, walked, and died and ransomed sinners to himself. And so um, we're in chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab a Bible in the back too. Uh, And I always say, keep that Bible. That's our gift to you uh, as well. Lastly, I forget all the time. If you're burdened kids and you're looking to be taught by Bob. Bob's in the back. So you guys can leave and head out and walk to Bob. We'll take you to the classroom. Um, so here's where we pick up. If you're, if you're just dropping into Luke, here, here's what basically has been happening is Jesus has been living. We've been seeing this guy, Theophilus, who's basically listening to this guy, Luke. Luke's writing um, this letter, and Luke was a physician. Luke was a guy that followed around with Paul. He was actually very faithful to Paul, the Apostle Paul. He, he was loved by Paul, and he's basically writing Theophilus to lay before him the life and teachings of Jesus, and not just so that we can read life and teachings and kind of be amused by them, but so we leave transformed, right? So We always say we're about transformation, not just teaching behavior, not just training ideas. We don't want you just to grow up with a big head that knows theology. We want that theology to be practiced so you can live rightly, walk rightly with fullness of joy as Jesus designed us to live. And so here we are, and he's been laying before us this life of Jesus. Now, recently, um, Jesus has been really invading our personal space, right? He's been basically straight up angry, and he has every reason to be angry. I was talking to someone the other day who was like, man, Mike, Pastor Mike, the last four weeks, like, Jesus. Jesus has just been angry. I'm like, yeah, because he's been laying before these people, basically the Jews, pretty much Israel, who he is and what he's done through his miracles, through his teachings, and there's been a a shift from chapter 9 to where now his face is towards Jerusalem, and and, and here's why these implications are getting more serious, because the more you reject Jesus, the more you suppress the truth of Jesus, then the more he's going to lay out for you what's going to happen if you continue to reject him, and so um, we've been learning what it means to be in the kingdom of God, and now the implications are, what if you're not in the kingdom of God? And so um, recently, Jesus has been going after people that think through their moral achievements and their righteousness of their own, they can enter this kingdom of God. We learn to know that the kingdom of God has a king, and you can only enter by his grace and by the work of his son. And so here we pick up this morning where Jesus has just finished saying, be sure to get right with God before, before your proverbial court date, right? He gave that kind of, the kind of parable of, of uh, the guy that, that gets dragged to the magistrate and then to the judge, and the judge hands it to the officer, and the officer throws him in prison. He was saying, hey, you got to settle your account now, and Jesus can pay your debt in full even to the last penny. We saw really good news last week. And so as he's been saying, be sure to get right with God before you show up in his courtroom, That introduces in the minds of the listeners this idea of death and judgment and tragedy. And the reason I think this surfaced is their traditional idea was that if you're punished by God, it's because you're a bad person. And if good things work out for you, it's because you're morally a good person. Um, and Jesus is just going to tear that down and show how silly that is. Now, um, he's got, the, the, the people are going to address, there are going to be two basic tragedies that, that occur, one the people reference and the one that Jesus references. And um, let me just say up front, some of you just aren't going to like his answer, okay? So uh, let's look at Luke chapter 13, 
verse 1. Here is what Luke writes. There were some present at that very time who had told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Okay, so remember, remember the context of this question. That's why we love going through books, because you're going to see what this is flowing out of. Jesus had just been saying, hey, spend less time watching the weather and more time checking your heart, right? He said, hey, spend less time on the trivial and more time on the forever, more time on the eternal. And so um, here they are. They always ask questions because they want to disregard Jesus, disregard death, disregard serious things. And so, um, they, you know, the weather was one thing, and the news is something that distracts us too. So they bring before Jesus a really newsworthy event of the day. They bring about something they're not sure if he knows. Now, Jesus is the only omniscient news reporter who ever lived, so we already knew about this, but they're reminding Jesus, and they ask this question, and, and what they basically say is, hey, Jesus, did you hear about those, that group of Galileans who, um, they, they went to worship at the Passover, and they were going into the synagogue, and did you hear about that group of Romans that came in and, and basically slaughtered them, and then commingled the blood, of their blood over the sacrifices of their altar? Now, now, this is like a horrific, horrific evil. Um, and, and what you got to understand is they're talking about it was Passover, and at Passover the Jews would go, and they'd basically ascend to this hill. They'd sing lots of songs, mostly psalms, and worship to God, and they'd, they'd bring a sacrifice, which was to foreshadow Jesus, the, the perfect sacrifice that would cleanse us from our sin. And so they would, they would repent of their sin, ask for forgiveness of sin, and they'd, they'd lay this animal on the altar to, to basically foreshadow and symbolize Jesus, who would ultimately do that and do away with their sin. And as, as they're doing this, these Romans come in and slaughter them, slit their throats, and take all all their blood and pour it over the altar where the sacrifice for God was supposed to be. This is like an authority coming in here in the middle of our, our service and just slitting our throats, taking our blood, and like washing the communion tables with it. Like evil, like horrific evil, a horrific tragedy. And here as they ask them these things, they come to Jesus and say, okay, why them? Like, did they have some secret sin we didn't know about? Did you have, like, just extra wrath towards them so you had this horrific act of violence happen to them? Are they worse than these other Galileans? And Jesus goes, is that what you're thinking? Let me ease your mind for a minute. No, that's not it. But, but hey, if you don't repent, you're going to die like that too. That's it? That's all we get? And then, of course, Jesus, who uh, is the omniscient news reporter, he brings up one on his own. They don't even ask. And he's like, hey, let me elaborate on another one for you. Or those 18, verse 4, on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus elaborates and says, okay, um, did you hear about the, this natural disaster? Okay, one was like wrought by human hands. This one's just kind of a tower that fell on people. Everyday people going to work, they weren't planning to die, and this tower in Siloam where Jesus actually will go and do ministry later falls on them and kills them. Do you think there's like some hidden wrath that God has towards that group of people, that those 18 in particular? Do you think that's why that happened? He says, no, that's not it, but here's what I will say to you. If you don't repent... You could die like that too. That, that's all we get from Jesus. So here you've got these two tragedies, right? One is done by the hands of evil, wicked men. One is where a building just fell. And the first thing Jesus does is put away the silliness that comes with this idea that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. Right? Some of you guys growing up, you're like, oh, that's karma, right? He, he just does the way the silliness of karma, right? So, so, so here's what he shows. The, these were worshipers going to worship God. They were killed. Then you have everyday people going about their work business, and they were killed. So you can't form this theology. There's a feudal theology that means, hey, if people are good and love God, God will love them. Nothing bad will happen. And if people are really wicked and bad, God will already pour his wrath that he meant to pour out on them anyways in the first place. He goes, that, that's silly thinking. That's not what's happening here. I mean, think about, think about how karma plays out with Jesus, I mean, we would all say, is Jesus in the bad category or good category? Just from a morality standpoint, good, right? Even if, even if you don't, aren't a Christian, you're like, yeah, he was a good man, moral teacher. He kind of observed the law. He taught well. So, so he's, he's a good teacher. So Jesus, how did it work out for Jesus? Jesus suffered the worst fate of any man. He was killed on a cross. 
So the best man who ever lived suffered the worst fate. How does karma fit into that? We're all doomed if karma works, right? And so Jesus shows that's not why these things happened. You can't only say those who serve God get rewarded and those who don't perish. Now, this question is in their minds, like I said, because this was in their Jewish theology. This was the only way they knew how to, how to define tragedy. If you go back to Job, a book that they love to read, I mean, you've got Job right in the midst of utter calamity. If you don't know that story, right, God allowed Satan to go and take some of his family, his cattle. He was one of the wealthiest men who lived at the time, and he took almost all that he had, and um, his friends come to counsel him in, in the midst of the calamity, and eventually they come, and what do they say? Oh, man, you, you must have some sin in you, Job. That's why God's punishing you. You can see it in John 9 where the leaders come to Jesus who the man was born blind. And what do the leaders say? Hey, 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 who sinned? Him or his parents? They're, they're trying to fit into their theological category illness or suffering or pain. Or... And so they have this, this theology form that says, okay, no, only good things happen to those who worship and love God. Only bad things happen to those who say, no, God, you're evil, you're wicked. I don't like you. I don't trust you. And Jesus is just doing away with that. And Jesus says here, one thing to us. <laughs> Jesus says, when tragedy and death is thrust before you and you can't avoid it, the question not to ask is, are they more sinful? God, are you not just? God, are you evil? God, are you wicked? God, are you not loving? God, do you exist? God. What it should do is provide an opportunity for you to examine yourself. It's not just to ask these questions and poke fun at God and ask him these questions. And this is why they ask, why did this happen? They ask this because whenever death and tragedies lay before us, what do we want to do? We want to avoid it. We want to push it under a rug, into a corner, get a new hobby, buy a new trinket, judge God, not our hearts. We want to avoid death at all costs, avoid the reality of tragedy at all costs, right? I mean, and that, that, that couldn't be more true now, right, with what we see with terror, we see with violence, we see with injustice, we see with, man, we don't know what's going to happen when we walk out and drive home. And he goes, so instead of judging God and judging him and all the things that happen or don't happen, what's the deal with you? Have you considered your mortality? Because he's been talking about that the last four weeks. Have you considered that one day you'll stand before the just judge? Have you considered that your life is not guaranteed? Have you considered that if you waste your life storing up for you a storehouse on earth, that it could all be taken and you could lose it all in eternity? He's been saying this over and over and over. And we love to ignore and push to the side and do other things. I was thinking this week as I was, as I was reading this of uh, a guy before Kristen and I moved here to plant this church about three years ago, we uh, were in ministry outside D.C., and we did a lot of senior high, like high school camps, and I was speaking at one, and I was, there was a kid sitting on a couch reading the Da Vinci Code uh, during the camp, and I sat down next to him and said, hey, what are you reading? And he like almost fell apart because the pastor sits down and asks him, and he's got the Da Vinci Code. I was like, no, I want to know. He said, oh, the Da Vinci Code. And I was like, oh, who wrote that? I know who wrote it. I just want to make conversation. So he's like, oh, Dan Brown. You ever heard him? I'm like, oh, yeah, I think so. And, and then uh, I'm like, yeah, I think he's uh, just a crazy man who loves to write. But anyway, so, so what does he say? And he goes, well, um, He's basically convinced me that Jesus really isn't who he says he is in the Gospels. And I said, wow, that's amazing. So just reading this book, you're, you're convinced. He's like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm just convinced. Now, now, I knew him. He had some background. And so I sat with him for a minute. So I just started to engage him. And I, and I said, so um, let's say, hypothetically, I was able to convince you that this was all just garbage, and I could lay before you manuscripts and lay before you the historicity of the scriptures and lay before you inerrancy and lay before you how we can trust the Bible, why we can trust the Bible, and why over time, over 40 years, over multiple continents, over 40 authors of 1,500 years of writing, how this is the most synonymous book. And you can look at all the history books you love in your school and you love that you trust, but, but the Bible, it's got even more than that, more manuscripts than that, more trustworthiness than that. Let's say I convince you that this book is totally an error. Would you really turn to Jesus? Would you really repent of your sin? Would you really embrace him? Or would you run into something else? Oh, well, what about the Gospel of Judas? 
right? Oh, okay, and then I, I laid before you why the gospel of Jesus is garbage, how it couldn't be eyewitness, how it couldn't line up with the teachings and life of Jesus. Or would you then say, would you not trust Jesus and say, oh, well, it's all, all the hypocrites in the church. You know, it's everybody who claims to be one and isn't. Okay, so we got rid of all the hypocrites in the church, and you just showed up. It was just you, right? You come to church, and you teach, you hear the preaching. Would you then really repent of sin, or is it not true that when Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, there might be something underneath that that says, every time Jesus confronts you, confronts your mortality, confronts your sin, you want to hide, push on the rug, you don't want to deal with it. So you just come, up, come up with other things to distract you. That, that's what these people are doing. Well, well, why did this happen? Well, why did this happen? And Jesus is going, hey, repentance is being offered in my future sacrifice. Like, you won't have to worry about forever. You won't have to worry about your immortality. You can be secure in the grip of God. You can be forgiven of sin. You can have the debt paid in full. You can have wrath done away with that is over you. And all people want to do is, well, why? Well, why this? Why this? And come up with something new and think about something new and move on to something else. And Jesus just looks at him and says, hey, the issue is you better repent or you're going to perish too. I know I've said this before. When I became a Christian, I, I didn't have all my questions answered. You know, I'm still fleshing out questions that I study, and I, but, but this book has never not outweighed itself. And Jesus just keeps affirming and affirming and affirming and affirming. And so Jesus looks at these people that want to skirt around the issue, and he says, you need to repent. And we don't always know what God is doing. And listen, I'm not saying it's wrong for you to say, God, why, in the midst of pain and agony. I would never say that. When you're in the midst of pain and agony, and I'm not saying it's spirit fingers. I'm saying there's in the deepest possible pain a leaning into the sovereign God that we trust and take refuge in and hope in and say, I'm still going to trust you despite Help me to trust. Help me to walk. Help me to know. And, but, but, but we're not going to know why God does everything. You're not going to get all your questions answered in this life. You will have every question answered post-resurrection in future glory. But on this earth, in, the, in this time, the scriptures say what? We see what? We see dimly. We see in part. And God's not going to give you all his answers, but he will give you Jesus the one who suffered, the one who died, the one who rose, and gives you a kingdom where ultimately all your answers will make sense. And so Jesus gives himself. And so here he answers both tragedies with repent or likewise perish. So let's understand this for a minute. When Jesus says likewise, he's not saying if you don't repent, you're going to die just like these people. Right? He's not saying that you're going to experience the same horrific death. We will all, we talked about this last week, death is hard charging at 100%. We're all going to die at some point, unless Jesus returns before that. But we're going to die in different ways. Death is laid before us the moment you come out of the womb. And so when he says likewise, what he's talking about is it's meaning that death snuck up on these people. They weren't prepared for death. They weren't ready to die. Jesus is saying, all of us are on borrowed time. All of us. That's sobering. All of us are living on borrowed time right now. All of us is just are living off of the breath that God continues to give, the air he continues to provide in our lungs, in our hearts, to think, live, walk. And this is a foundational way to view the world because the personal work of Jesus is the only thing that can save us from the danger of being alive. You know, you know, the real scary thing isn't death. The real scary thing is being alive and not having the one who rescues you from death. So, so the personal work of Jesus, he's the one who says, hey, the sting of death is gone. Right? I mean, that in 1 Corinthians, Paul uses that language. You no longer have to fear it anymore. That thing that's hard charging at 100%, you can have no fear for it because Jesus conquered it, killed it, rose again to show he has full authority over it. And then he says, hey, I can ransom you into that kingdom where there will be no death. And there will only be fullness of life and joy. So let's remind ourselves for a minute, brothers and sisters, that suffering, that tragedy, that natural disasters is nothing unusual.
Let's remind ourselves of the fact that over 50 million people die every year. Six thousand every hour, over a hundred every minute. You know, by the time this worship service is finished, possibly six to seven thousand people will have died. Now we don't think about that, and we don't like to think about that. And I, I understand that we we love our families, we love we love our life, but but Jesus is is reminding us, hey, this is this is reality, though. You're living on borrowed time, and I don't know when your time's coming. So the point is, hey. Have you repented of sin? Have you been rescued from death? Do you know Jesus? Have you used, when things are laid before you, when you see terror, when you see death, when you see tragedy, when you see natural disaster, is the function of your heart to say, man, do I know God? Am I reconciled to him? Do I know Jesus? Do I love Jesus? Am I in the kingdom or outside of the kingdom? I mean, that's the question we should be asking because if you're inside the kingdom, it strips away fear, it strips away angst, it strips away heartache in the sense of we're secure and ready. If not, it should well up in you some unease. And so here we see Jesus roll out what has always been true. And so Jesus' explanation is, yeah, those people were murdered. Yeah, that tower fell on those people, but it could happen to you too. So make sure you repent. It's crazy to me because it, it, reading this, even I got a little frustrated. I mean, I remember reading Luke 13 a while back, but even me reading this just got me frustrated because Jesus doesn't give us the answer that we want. Right? I mean, as, I, as I'm reading this, and he doesn't explain deeper theologies to make sense of these tragedies. And if he did, Luke doesn't reveal it, so the Holy Spirit doesn't want us to, to see those things. But, but Jesus gives an answer that is a very difficult answer, especially in our culture. Because I, I swear, most people want to worship a God who's obligated to explain everything to you, and not just explain everything to you, but until it sits well with you in your little piggy bank. And I'm just telling you, it's never worked that way. And you know what? He doesn't have to. Yet, he says, I am just in all that I do. I am good in all that I do. I am wise in all that I do. I am loving in all that I do. I am perfect in all that I do. So the infinite perfections that are the God that we serve, we trust, we find refuge in. And this, this sermon isn't about fleshing out all those things. We're going to look right at the text and say, tethered there. That's for another time. But we know underneath Jesus' response, he's already been saying for years in his ministry, you can trust me. I'm a father. I, I care for those I've made. I offer forgiveness of sin. He hasn't left us hanging or in the dark about who he is and why he's came. And yet, here we see him not give us the answer that we want. We just don't like this explanation that says, no, you just worry about you. You examine you. We hate that. It reminded me of um, in the book of uh, John, the Gospel of John, where I don't know if you are familiar with that story where, where Peter's with Jesus at, at the end. Jesus has already risen from the dead, and, and he's walking with Peter, and Jesus basically um, prophesies his death. He goes, hey, when you were young, you know, someone had to hold your hand and take you around. Hey, you know when you're older, um, people are going to take your hand and make you do what you don't want to do. He's basically saying they're going to persecute you. Ultimately, we know under Nero he was crucified. And, And look at Peter's response in John 21. It says, when Peter saw him, saw John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. (laughs) Hey, Peter, worry about yourself. We hate that answer. It drives us nuts. Right? Well, he goes, what about John? I mean, when's he going to die? Can you tell me how he's going to die? Or when that's coming, he's like your most beloved one, right? And he goes, hey, hey, Peter, you follow me. What is it to you if he remains all the way until I return again, or I keep him alive and sustain his life? Hey, Peter, you worry about you. And see, we're just like, we're just like Peter. Jesus tells us that death is coming, and we just want to know answers to everything else around us. And he's going, hey, Peter, Peter. He's like slapping him, right? I picture him, hey, Peter. Hey, hey, I'm talking to you. Who cares about him? Who cares about that? You. What's the deal with you? What's the story I'm writing for you? Are you prepared? You know me. You love me. Feed my sheep, he'll go on to say. Make disciples. See, there are many people that 
that believe. It's, it's, it's funny as, as a pastor, right? You just talk to lots of people who then want to ask you questions, and you really can't go anywhere. And as soon as they ask, what do you do? You're in the doghouse, right? So they either run or they want to stay in dialogue. So, so if they don't run, they want to dialogue. Most of the times, um, as we're talking, I get to learn a little bit about how people think. And most commonly, what I learn is that people either want to or think that when they die, they're going to stand before Jesus and they're going to judge him on why he did everything the way that he did it. Why'd you do this, this? Why'd you allow this? Why? But guys, as, as I read this book, <laughs> I, I, I get, correct me if I'm wrong, I see it as us standing before him as the just judge going, hey, no, what did you do when mortality was laid before you? What, what did you do when death was thrust before you? What did, you? did you consider Jesus? Did you repent of sin? Did you turn to the one that has life and not death? What did, what did you do? Not us standing before Jesus and putting him on the dock and saying, hey, hey, you did this, you did this. None of us are going to have any reason to speak. His glory will be extravagant, and we will be judged solely on the person of Jesus. So whether you were good or bad or whatever you did in your life, right, he's the caliber. He's the standard. It's not us versus them or us versus ISIS, us versus Osama bin Laden. No, there are evil people and there's a holy God. There's a righteous one and unrighteous people. He's the one, the just God who dies for the unjust so we can be reconciled to God. It's all in his life. It's all in his death. It's all in his resurrection. So he makes it all right. So when you stand before him, you won't have anything to say. We learned that last week. You go before the courtroom, you're going to want someone to stand your place as a champion. You're not going to have anything to say. The court can't speak to you. Your life can't speak for you, nothing can speak for you except the risen Christ if he's yours and you are his and he stands for you and says he's mine. I purchased him. I bought him. So he's, we've got a weird way of viewing things. So Jesus will say to us, you saw all this happen. You saw people die. How did you respond to your mortality? Did you repent? And if you don't, you'll perish just like them. Perish meaning the unpopular belief and understanding that's in the Bible, that that means conscious eternal torment in hell separated from God. That's, what, that's when he says perish. That's what he's talking about. When he talks about repent, he means turning to Christ and finding life, finding forgiveness, finding eternal life. So Jesus' point here is that these men and women who have died all died unprepared, but underneath all of this is an unspoken layer in that there is a way to die prepared, right? So if, if this is the way that how to not die prepared, then, then how do we die prepared? And he's gonna roll out a little story. It's, it's a parable. It's just a, a story that helps illustrate a theological idea or truth. He's gonna end this with this story that basically is gonna show you the wrath of God towards sin and the patience of God towards creation. And here's what Jesus says in verse six. He's gonna, he's gonna basically explain what he means by repentance here, and this is paramount. And he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find nothing. Cut it down. Why should I use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it, put on some manure, then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. Um, fig trees are, are very common in Israel. They were great for trade, great for shade. And Jesus gives this parable of this man who owns a vineyard, and he's got all of his trees numbered, and he keeps coming back to this one tree after three years going, man, there's just no fruit on it. Like, it's just not producing anything. So, hey, let, let's just cut this thing down, and this tree is fig-free, it's got no fruit. Now, now maybe that, that's some of us, right? We've, we've been at church for three years. This is helpful. We, we've sat in Christianity. We've sat in Church of Bergen for three years, and there's no fruit in your life. You're fruitless. You've heard the story and the message of Jesus. It does nothing to you. It transforms nothing. It transcends nothing. There's nothing playing out in your life that shows that you're tethered to him, that you love him, that you love his glory, that you love holiness, that you love walking with him. Yet you sit there, and it just... and so. In this analogy, it's okay, well, man, there's just no fruit, cut it down, that person goes to hell. Seems a little harsh, right? Seems a little serious. And Jesus is telling this parable to people 
who think, remember, if you're tying this back, that their morality has brought about the favor of God and destruction of others. So what he's saying here is, you better repent of your fruitlessness. And when he says fruitlessness, he's, he's attacking this idea that your moral achievements are gaining for you a storehouse in heaven. Right? So, so he's looking at this idea of fruitfulness and fruitlessness. And, and so Jesus is saying, you think that's the fruit that I want? You think that all I want is, is your moral achievements? No, I want repentance. Repentance is worship and submission to God. So, so repentance is not, hey, I just try to be nicer. I try to be better. I try to just busy myself with being good. Repentance means you make much of the God of the universe. You don't belittle his name. You walk in line with how he's wired you for your joy and for his glory. And so repentance isn't how happening in the certain tree. There's no fruit at all. That is repentance. It leads to worship and glad submission. It's fruitless. In other words, okay, you've been doing all these good deeds, he's telling these people, but it's not bearing any real fruit for the kingdom. So here's how it gets on the ground for us. What, this, is, this is what happens. This tree, before we keep going, is what happens when your life, void of the cross of Christ, kind of walks in here with, without any repentance. This is what happens when your life meeting the cross of Christ becomes just a list of moral compliances for you. Like, like what is this time in Sunday morning? Is it just standing up and sitting down for an hour? Is, is, does it cause you just want to busy yourself to try to be better and try to be good? Or, or does this push you towards and press you into and challenge you and convict you and sway you into a good, gracious, kind God who calls you into deeper life and deeper meaning and deeper purpose where you grow in love for God and love for his glory? What's happening in your heart? Like, what is this doing in here? What is worship to you? Is it, oh, this is where I sing? Or is it, this is where I consider him? This is where I tell him how great and majestic and awesome he is? Is communion just, hey, this is the, the thing we do following the sermon where I take, and it's this, I know, visible representation. I know, I gotta examine my heart. I know, or, or is it, man, I'm about to approach the table where, where if Paul will say, man, I could, God will strike people dead if they do it in an unworthy manner. You gotta, you gotta come and watch your heart, examine your heart, and say, hey, is there any hidden sin? And this is for Christians, not just non, it's not a fancy thing to do. It's something that where we remember and treasure and grow in love for the God that redeemed and saved us. That's the fruit that Jesus is looking for. That's the fruit the gospel only produces. Right? The gospel doesn't produce a Pharisaic heart. The true gospel produces a growing love and worship for a God who we once belittled and now love. <laughs> and so what happens when, instead of growing in love for God and his glory, you just try busying yourself with being better? You start using up the ground. You start using up his ground. You're living contradicting to the contradiction of the gospel. And so Jesus says, mm, cut it down. And he, here's what's, what's wonderful. Here's what he should do. He should cut it down. But look at what he does. The vine dresser is God, and he's got right anger towards the belittlement of his name, towards the sin that prevents us from entering his presence, but there's patience in the middle. And in the middle of all of that, as you feel the heat kind of creeping on your back, wow, uh, I'm in danger. I haven't lived right. I have said, hey God, let me mock you, let me trod your planet, let me do what I want, let me be the God of my life. In the middle of that, as right anger and wrath is towards you, he says in the middle of that, he has patience that is withheld, withholding his wrath, and he says, hey, give it a little more time. What grace. That, that he's showing you his patience even here. Hey, give it more time. Hey. First, no figs. Hey, cut it down, send it to hell. Oh, no, 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 not just yet. Not just yet. There's still hope for you. Repent, otherwise you'll perish. Come to Jesus. Be reconciled to God. Trust him. The only one who can pay your debt in full and reconcile you to a glorious God who appeases the wrath and, and rises, validating it all. And this is why I love this story. It's not what I'm expecting I don't know what you're expecting. Like, even me, if I'm that farmer, I'm that person going around, I'm like, yeah, cut it down, no fruit, right? Thank goodness I'm not God, 
right? Thank goodness. God says, hold on, hold on, all withhold. Hey, put some irrigation around it. Let's put some manure on it. Let's see if I can lean into him, massage his heart, call into myself, put a preacher in his life, put a church gathering in his life, see if he can hear my voice and turn from his sin and repent. Man, that's why some of you this morning, the manure is right now. The manure is the sermon right now where he is realigning, recalibrating, massaging your heart, going, hey, I'm a good, gracious God. I love what I've made. I'm calling you to myself. I offer forgiveness of sin. I offer you to lead the futile way that you're living. You can come to me now. You can repent. Otherwise, your mortality is hard charging at 100%. You don't know when you're going to die. And if you do, apart from me, you will perish. But how kind is God that he says, hold on a little more time. A little more time, a little more time. Amazing grace, amazing patience. That's why we're just seeing a rinse and repeat of Jesus from the last four years, right? <laughs> or over the la- or last four years, four weeks. Wow. That, well, yeah, four years before I was even here. This is this is him just engaging you, reminding you, and warning you. Maybe my patience will draw them out. And and here's the thing, guys. Here's the the scary side. The scary side is there are some of you where you'll sit in a sermon, you'll encounter someone who loves you and loves Jesus and and just confronts you on some sin that you believe, you know, could be bad for you or you're not walking in the light or you're not really a Christian and, and this just keeps getting laid before you. And so in your heart, you keep saying, okay, yeah, no, I hear that. Yeah, no, I've got it. No, I, I know the truth. I'll, I'll eventually get it. Here, here's the thing. You know, that Jesus leaning into you graciously, whispering kindness to you, calling you to himself, you know, eventually that still voice is not going to be there anymore. Like, you don't have eternity to just call on him whenever you want. I say this all the time. The Holy Spirit of God is not at your bidding. So, man, when he unveils himself to you and opens your heart, repent of sin and run to him and throw yourself on the mercy of God in the gospel, which is Jesus. Don't wait, because if you don't repent, we don't know when you're going to perish. Jesus is laying before us some weighty, weighty, weighty things So he says, loosen the soil, allow for irrigation, put manure down, then maybe it'll bear fruit. That tree is living on borrowed time. It doesn't deserve time, but God keeps giving it time. Okay, I'll keep you alive. I'll keep you alive. I'll keep you alive. It would have been right to cut the tree down. And that's precisely what Jesus is saying about every human life. God is patient, but at some point, his patience will wear out. I I remember years ago, years ago, they did a special on 2020. And I don't know if any of you guys are familiar with it. It's called the Blasphemy Project. And they got a group together, and they, they, they basically put all over YouTube and all these internet sites where it was basically this idea where we can mock the God of the Christian faith or the God of really any faith, and we can say that we can get unhindered by the chains and the burdens and the oppression of religion, and then we can be free, and we can declare to this deity that we're not afraid of anything. And so they would basically record themselves saying, I mean, heretical, mocking statements, God, you're a child molester, God, you're a wimp, God, and then they would video and say, and I'm not afraid and I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And, and, and so this, this caught fire. I mean, this got hundreds of thousands of views. I mean, people started watching. Hundreds of thousands of people started videoing themselves saying, hey, God, you're this, God, you're that, and making a mockery of his name and then saying, and I just blasphemed the Holy Spirit and I'm not afraid at all. Now, now here's the thing. I'd be willing to throw some money on the table that since those videos... Those people have experienced some pretty good things. You think they had a good steak for dinner since then? I bet. You think they've had some good laughs? Absolutely. You think they've enjoyed some good relationships, unhindered fornication? Absolutely. You think they've had some good food to eat? Absolutely. Think they've had some good nights of sleep? Absolutely. Is that not the mercy and patience of God? God 
you're a child molester, you're a wimp. Just saying horrific things. I'm going to trot on your planet. I want nothing to do with you. And God still says, I'll withhold my wrath. I'll continue to be patient. I won't smite you and incinerate you now, even though you deserve it. What every human being deserves for belittling and profaning, profaning the name of Jesus. I mean, is that not God's mercy? The answer is yes. <laughs> the fact that God allows for evil to continue is an act of divine mercy. So Jesus is reminding these men and women of his right wrath and his patience, and the only way to avoid his right wrath and his patience is what's called repentance. You know, um, religion teaches that we're saved by our fruit. Repentance teaches that we're saved by the fruit of Jesus. Right? So religion of any kind outside of Christianity is bear fruit, do good works, be really moral, and then God will judge you on a curve. Right, right. The Christian faith teaches, no, we're judged by the fruit of Jesus, which is repentance into Jesus, which is his life, his death, his resurrection. That's good news for us. So religion, you're saved by your fruit. Repentance, you're saved by Jesus' fruit. And I want to end with just giving us a good kind of place to hang our hat on for repentance as we land the plane. Second Corinthians 7, great text on what repentance is. So, so if you're here this morning, and here's the great thing, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, the answer for you leaving is the same. It's repentance. Martin Luther said, all of the Christian's life is one of repentance. So as a Christian, you are saved by repenting of sin, and you grow and mature in Christ by repenting of sin. So you, for the non-believer and the believer, this is good news, right? So, so all of us are lights on paying attention because repentance matters for everybody. That's the big lie we buy in evangelicalism, right? Is that, yeah, I repent of my sin one time and then I'm finished, then I move on to new things. No, you keep repenting of sin until you reach glory through the help of the Holy Spirit. So this is what 2 Corinthians says. It says, for godly grief, godly sorrow, some of your Bibles might say, produces a repentance that leads to salvation that leaves no regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So Paul makes a great distinction of repentance for us. If you want in your Bible, if you're kind of new to your Bible too, find in places, you want to know the best place that really helps us understand repentance, it's this one. I would circle it or highlight it. And here, here's what Paul does for us. It's great. He, he basically shows that true repentance, biblical repentance, is motivated more than just to ease your conscience and have a clear peace of mind. Like, it's not just, here, here's, here's worldly sorrow. Here's worldly grief. Man, I made a mess of my life, and I hate that I made a mess of my life. Now, I ask this all the time. I mean, can, can non-Christians, can people that don't know God, can they feel bad about actions? Absolutely. There's morality sown in all of our hearts, Romans will tell us. So you can feel bad, you can feel discouraged, you can feel downcast about all different types of things you do, but a, a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, it leads to life and doesn't leave regret, that's where you realize I've offended him. Like my actions aren't just horizontal, they're not just about us, it's about a vertical reality where I've belittled the name of God. So repentance is motivated by not just, hey, let me ease my conscience, let me say I'm sorry, I feel bad about what I've done, I hate what I've done with my life, I want to get clean, I want to get help. No, no, a true repentance says I don't want to dirty my soul because by doing that I continue to belittle the name of God and mock his very nature and character. And so repentance says I won't do that any longer because I love him and he has died for me and rescued me. And so you start putting that mockery, that idolatry to death. So repentance is this, because Jesus died for my sin, by faith in him and grace from him, I can put my sin to death. Because Jesus died for my sin, then repenting by faith in him and grace from him, I can put my sin to death. You kill your sin as it killed Jesus, and you can kill your sin because Jesus killed it for you. You can. The scriptures are crystal clear on this. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Declare war on it. Murder it. We like to treat sin like our pets, though, right? Just kind of train them, pet them. Oh, good, it's not really doing much. You forget that it's a lion sitting there, not a cat. And then you get eaten and you wonder what happened. 
so we repent of sin. And this means you don't minimize it, you don't excuse it, you don't defend it, you don't trivialize it, just flat out, this is, yeah, this is sin. This is sin, and I want to turn from that and turn to Christ. This is why repentance is for all people, right? So, so the mark of a Christian, guys, isn't that we're the nicest people, although by God's grace we should be. It isn't that we're the most generous people, although by God's grace we should be. It's not that we're the most hospitable people, although by God's grace we should be. It's that we're repentant people. That's the mark of a Christian. I mean, I mean, think about how silly this is. Like, Christians aren't, aren't just parading around saying how great they are. I mean, the fundamental issue, the fundamental thing that we, that we plead and scream and share and, and talk about is a God that killed us when we were an enemy. So we, so we have no place to boast. There's no goodness in you. You're boasting, and you're boasting in his great goodness. And so repentance comes from, a, comes from a, yes, I'm not perfect, but I know the one who is, and I'm repenting and turning to the one who is. You're very honest about your failings. You're very honest about your shortcomings. You're very honest about the ways that you have belittled the God of the universe. This is huge in, in our day as, as, Christian, as Christians. I'm, I just want to um, end with this last thought. Um, here's what happens when you, when you stop repenting, right, and, and leaning into Jesus, which exposes your need for a Savior and then saves you by the work that he's done and enables you to continue walking. Here's what happens when you stop repenting and then you just start trying to manage your sin. I know I talk about this a lot, but it's so pervasive. Because one is fueled by the gospel, fueled by grace, fueled by faith in the very thing that saved you, and the other thing is fueled by you just trying to ease your conscience and get out of something and have a better life. So, so here's what you do. When you, when you stop repenting, because repentance is, I'm heading towards sin, I'm turning towards Christ, right? It's a turning away from sin and turning towards Christ. So what most of us like to do is just turn away from sin. You don't turn to Christ, you just turn away from sin. So you keep walking, right? You're just avoiding sin, avoiding sin, taking that trail, that trail, the blue trail, the red trail, the green trail. But you never turn to Jesus, the very one, the only one who has the power to break that thing in your life. So instead of turning around to Jesus and pushing headlong into Jesus, you just keep playing the game where I'm going to turn from sin. Oh, there's more sin. I'm going to turn from it. Repentance is turning to Jesus. So, so here's what happens. Let's say that you're sin is lust, or your, your sin is discipline, or I don't know what it is. And so what you do eventually is if you're not repenting and turning to Christ to kill that very thing that's in you, you start turning to something else to defeat it. So if with all your vigor and all your vitality, you overcome lust and you overcome discipline, what does that get replaced with? Pride and arrogance, which is even harder to penetrate and harder to kill and harder to see. So now what happens is it's not, hey, God, I need a Savior. I can't save myself. It's, wow, I just saved myself because of my vigor and my vitality, and I didn't push into Jesus. I didn't see his person to work. I didn't study. I didn't get exposed and join community. I didn't see more of him in the preaching. I didn't love him or long for his glory. All I want to do is to avoid sin. So I'm not pushing into Jesus. I'm going to push into me. So you become God again. This circles you right back to Genesis 3. We're back in the same issue of you belittling the God of the universe, you being wanting to be God and not him. And so until you humble cry out and ask for forgiveness and ask God to change your heart, only then can he kill the sin in you. So listen, we're not about training behavior. We're about transformation. I keep saying that. You're not going to be transformed if you think by showing up, pixie dust is going to fall on you, and you're just going to magically leave different. There has to be an act of what's called repentance. You turn from sin. You say no to sin. You see what Jesus has done, and then you pursue him. You walk with him. It takes time. It takes days. It takes years, but there's a pursuit. There's a longing. There's a desire. There's a push. There's a prodding. You, you, don't, you don't look at sin and then just sit. I mean, you get up. We say this all the time. A mark of Christian maturity is when you fail and when you stumble, you get up and you run and you launch yourself headlong into the risen Savior and you see more of him and you ask people to get around you and instruct you and encourage you and help you. We're one big, goofy, beautiful mess. We're, we're, we're not people that are, that are all perfect, but we're repentant people that want to pursue the one who can change and transform. So let's not just be sin avoiders, but people that repent and turn to Jesus. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, don't get caught in the crazy cycle expecting fruit to happen. It's not going to come unless you truly repent. You're going to keep being a tree that bears no fruit, and you're going to wonder why. And until you repent and turn to him, you'll eventually be cut down. But thank God he's gracious 
thank God the fact that we're all here is a mark of his grace. The fact that we're right here sitting here is a mark of patience. So we're going to have an opportunity to repent right now. We always do that before we take communion. We examine our hearts. We repent of sin where it's there. If you're not a Christian, this isn't for you. It's for those who love Jesus and have trusted in Jesus. If you repent of sin and turn to Christ this morning, you're welcome to the table. But for those of us that are believers who have trusted in Jesus, Paul says, examine your heart. See if there's any wicked ways. See if there's things you need to just confess to God, repent of it, and say, God, I want to put that death. I want to turn to you. And with the power of your cross and your finished work, fuel me and enable me to walk right with you now. And give me the courage for me to have some conversations I need to have. Give me the courage to have some, I don't know, decisions in my life I need to, I need to have, I need to make. And here's the thing, communion is a celebration because when you come to the table, you don't come sad or downtrodden. You come thanking him that his purchasing work was enough. That by the fruit of his life, his shed blood and his broken body, you can be set free from sin. Let's ask him for help. God, thank you that your word is true. Thank you that we need help. Thank you that left to our own, we are incapable of living a life of righteousness. So, Father, even in this moment, would you begin to massage our hearts? Would you begin to care for us in ways that we desperately need your care? Would you help us as parents to parent and shepherd our children like Jesus? Would you forgive us for the ways that we felt short of that this week? Would you, God, call some to repentance this morning who right now are perishing? Would they repent of sin and turn to you and find life and find hope and find meaning and find depth and find beauty in the finished work of Jesus? God, rip them away from the tireless pursuit of religious activity and trying to bear fruit. And would you enable them to bear fruit that comes from the life of your son? Father, would you be glorified and worshiped as we sing we think about these words as we come to the table. God, might it be sweet. God, remind us this week that we are living on borrowed time. And might that cause us as Christians to live a life of repentance and cause those of us who don't know Jesus to turn in repentance to you. Thank you for your patience. In Jesus' name, amen.